democracy is worth dying for. People are dying for democracy all around the world. So try to appreciate the systems that we have in Sweden. It's not about defending them. We need to advance them. And uh, be realistic. Always demand the impossible. Always demand the impossible. If, if we have no people demanding the impossible, we will not move. We always need a horizon of the impossible in order to dream of a more, of a better world. Hello, my name is Nazem Tavizadeh. I'm an associate professor in political science and senior lecturer in public administration at Sedatan University. I'm here to talk about democracy, social justice, and the meaning of life. Thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif, an urban planner, and you're more than welcome to join my big journey of exploring the making of smarter and more livable cities. Please don't forget to follow Urbanistica on the different social media platforms. And also let's connect on LinkedIn. Big thanks to Urbanistica podcast partner, Afri. Afri is an international engineering and design company providing sustainable solutions in the fields of energy, industry and infrastructure. Are you ready for a new episode? Let's go for it. Today we have a new story and we have a new storyteller. I have the pleasure to welcome you, Nazem, to Urbanistica podcast. Hey, and welcome. Thank you very much. How are you doing? I am good. How are you? I'm very good. I'm happy to see you. I listened to you at ATH, then at, uh, like we had, you did the presentation at every panel. And now you're here finally, like I have you for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> so how was your uh, month? or last two weeks? Um, as you all know, November is a tough month in Sweden. And now we also have a snow chaos on top of that with yeah. the urban infrastructure dismantling. Mm. So it's tough, but we are rough people, aren't we? So we keep on struggling. <laughs> so how was it to come uh, to the office here? Was it easy? Struggling? <laughs> uh, it was a bit struggling, yeah. yeah. First of all, because of the snow chaos, they uh, canceled a lot of trains. So they're half mm. train set, the Pendeltog, the commuter trains here. Yeah. So basically people stood on each other. And mm. you know, when Swedish people have to stand too close to each other. Like the worst uh, thing ever. They freak out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I tried to use Google Maps to walk to this office and uh, I ended up on a heavy traffic road with no pavement. Oh, nice. And I uh, had to reroute. Oh. And uh, what I actually thought about was how much investments mm. have been placed here on urban planning without no sense of publicity or like walk friendly or, or making a city that connects, you know, different people and doing different things. It's, it's very instrumental. 
that was a bit shocking, but I knew this from before from the Solna kind of style. This northern municipality in Stockholm is it's a bit special uh place for planning. Mm. From which aspect? Like more for cars or um, or, or how do you mean? Solna has been developed you can see exactly how it has been developed in different eras and it seems like for each era it just adds on a segregated structure that you know separates people rather than brings them together in this kind of easy going flow doing things in the city and of course i think solna is uh, advantaging car drivers Seems like many other municipalities still doing it as well. Yes, yes, but we have to keep in mind that we are pretty much in the center of Stockholm city. That's true, it's not far away. Mm. So that's a bit yeah, surprising, isn't it? Mm. It's also sad, I think, because I, I tr- how to say, commute here every day. Mm. And as you mentioned, it's like this huge, mega, big project. And then we as individuals struggle so much just to cross the street. Or just to walk, like, it's it's five minutes from the station to the office. But it turns to be like ten minutes. Exactly. Because you need to go up and down, up and down, and then jump and so on. So, like, I'm imagining what if a person has, like, uh, physical challenges or with, on a wheelchair or a, or a parent with, a, like, a baby stroller. Like, yeah. And it's, like, no way for them. Yeah, exactly. My oldest son is disabled and on a wheelchair and also I have two smaller ch- children and I think about this all the time. Mm. But from a more egoistic perspective, uh, I was a bit early today, so I was planning on, you know, uh, hitting a cafe maybe, <laughs> having my second cup of morning coffee, Relaxing. preparing for this talk, mm. maybe, you know, smell the 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 atmosphere of, of Solna City. And what surprised me, and this, no, very few are talking about this, mm. but this is my spawning or my kind of uh, thoughts, tips, uh, uh, thoughts about mm. what to look at when we are looking at the future of planning is that in this kind of heavy investment infrastructure, investment heavy kind of mm. planning atmospheres as Frösunda in Solna mm. with for example, the Afri building and a lot of other office buildings being built, planners are de-investing in, in the public values of the city. Mm. And a very good example of this is that I, I mean, thousands, at least hundreds of people must walk the way yeah, yeah. I walked from the commuter mm. train to this office. Yeah. And there was no cafe or even, uh, you know, place uh, weather protected place i could sit down and have a chill moment no except from indoors in the company buildings yeah the commercial one yeah so i had my i had my coffee in your foyer mm. here uh which is it's very symptomatic of the plan yeah. in like the corporate style planning we have uh, in Sp- in sweden and many other places where <laughs> imagine Afri investing in this, mm. or I don't know who owns the building, but but the planners here could very easily invest in in this planning projects by also at the same time strengthening public values. Mm. 
a cafe is not a hard thing to prepare for. I mean, you, you need a good facility, basically, and entrepreneurs will show up. Yeah. Especially if there's a lot of people moving, which is... Yeah, yeah. Which, and also like a good infrastructure for logistics, like yeah. for the goods and so yeah. on. Yeah. But instead, uh, planners have invested in the privatized sphere mm. of the buildings. So even the public activities going on here are forced to yeah. happen within the corporate sphere, which excludes a lot of people. True, true. We're going to talk more about these uh, challenges, but let's start with you. You're our storyteller. How would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Tell us about you. Uh, I'm a researcher. Uh, I'm also, uh, my background is, uh, I'm an immigrant in, in Sweden. My Me and my brother and my parents, we immigrated from Iran. We lived in Tehran in uh, 1986. So I have been living in Sweden for the most of my life. But I also have an Iranian identity. I speak Persian. Also my kids, they know Persian. And I'm very emotionally invested in Iran. Uh, I grew up uh, in a small city, even uh, you can call it a village even, in Sweden called Mariestad. So that's where I have my elementary schooling years until I was 19. After that, I moved to Gothenburg for the university and studied a political science master. And um, didn't know what to do with my life. Uh, I knew I was socially and politically engaged in in different kinds of social movements at the time, around 2005, uh, anti-discrimination, anti-racist movements, uh, but also like e- ethnic minority organizations, Iranian organizations, and other communities struggling for, for different social justice values. And in relation to that, the best option that showed up for me was an invitation to join a PhD program at the same department I, I studied. It's the School of Public Administration in Gothenburg. So I wrote a dissertation there and I finished the PhD education 2012. And uh, in Gothenburg, I also met my partner who is from Solentuna, north of Stockholm. And she always had this vision that we will move back to her home. And, and I agreed. So love brought me to Stockholm. Yeah, welcome. Thank <laughs> you very much. So I live in uh, northern Stockholm. And um, since 2012 here in Stockholm, I have been working with research and teaching in different places. Uh, KTH, Urban and Regional Studies. Uh, was the main site for me uh, for the for the last years, but I've also worked at uh, Monkeltred Centrum, that is a research center focusing on multicultural issues in southern Stockholm, mm. Utsjukakommun, in Fitja. I have also have had I quit a recent employment in the political science department at Malmö University, okay. and I. I have a position now as a senior lecturer and associate professor in political science at the, the Division of Public Administration at Södertörn University. Wow. Why you quit? Malmö University. Yeah. Uh, it was just far, too far from mm. home, but it was a job I wanted. Mm. And uh, I, I was there for a couple of years. Okay. But 
I succeeded, I succeeded to get a lectureship in public administration in Södertörn. I was very happy about that. It's like winning an Oscar. You people know this. It's very hard. Okay. So when you win a, a permanent position in a uni- Swedish university, it's, it's big. It's, yeah. Congratulations. A lot of champagne have, bottles have been opened <laughs> and so on. <laughs> so what do you work with now? Like, well, how, Do you have a specific uh, project to work on or no? Um, I guess uh, one branch of my work is research mm-hmm. and the other branch is um, teaching. I will start teach. I haven't started yet, but it's uh, courses in public administration. Uh, that's the focus. And uh, when it comes to research, I have like all my old projects are haunting me still. So I have I'm, I'm I have always different things uh, going on. But uh, I can tell you one exciting thing that I am pretty sure that I will do that for the next six months is in collaboration with Malmö City yeah. and the leisure department of Malmö City are concerned that uh, a critical mass of working class youth in marginalized areas are not participating in the subsidized leisure and cultural activities of the city. Okay. So around 40%, especially female, so, so, so mm-hmm. young girls, mm-hmm but also young people living in marginalized areas in Malmö are not participating in associational or other municipal leisure activities, Mm. football, dance, and so on. So they want to know why, Mm. and they want to know what they can do about it. So we are going to do a social justice-oriented policy analysis Mm. and see how their subsidies are in a way, strengthening segregation in the leisure field. Okay. And it's very interesting because yeah. if you look like uh, wealthy people, they take their kids to football practice or, or hockey training and these kind of time-consuming and also resource-consuming activities. While poorer families, they let their kids go to open activities mm. like swimming halls, mm. libraries, Youth recreation center, cultural houses. It's because uh, of the economical aspect. Uh, I think so because maybe the parents don't have to follow them after a certain age, mm. and uh, also because you young people can go there on their own initiative. So it's like a freedom value in mm-hmm. going to these more open activities. If you go, to, you cannot just go to a handball practice. You need some relation with the club yeah you need to sign up to an association Mm. and for some people it's a money issue but for some other it's it's a mental barrier that maybe Mm. that is not what they want to do yeah and so if you don't start there's a barrier right while a library is always open for true a youth recreation center Mm. is always open Mm. for you still 40 percent ish are not Mm. using this and we are going to investigate why like why that's interesting so this is like an example of the kind of research i do which is often placed in collaboration with policymakers and planners and it's it's also typical of my research themes Mm. focusing on democracy uh, planning participation equality social justice issue 
relation to existing structures like mm. segregation or ethnic uh, discrimination or racialization uh, and so on. Yeah, like this is your niche. And I I want to ask you like why you started it's like when you start to study university like political science why you became so much interested in this niche and you just continue with it uh i guess uh, it it's a sum of different aspects of my life my parents were revolutionaries from iran they struggled to for a, for a more socially just and democratic society and they failed so their their trauma i think has I have inherited that feeling that um, the loss of something that mm. could have been great but still was lost and at the same time that it is an ongoing struggle to achieve that. Uh, it's like in my upraising, this mm. feeling that we cannot give up, maybe we lost this struggle, there are other struggles. So political and social justice issues has always been like one of my main interests. Uh, but also we were poor when we grew up as an immigrant household in uh, in this small city. My my parents didn't have jobs all the time. And when they had jobs, it wasn't the most well-paid jobs. They were working class or lower, lower middle class teachers. And eventually my, my mother got an education and started work as a social worker. Uh, which of course strengthened her mm. position in society. But my father was unemployed for a very long time, and yeah. and uh, that affected me because we couldn't we could not do a lot of things. But also we had, I think, both me and my brother, uh, a sense of not being part of Sweden. Mm. While I mean, I was six, my brother was two when we arrived, and for us, Iran wasn't really an option. We were we saw ourselves as Swedish people. Mm. And this sense of exclusion, I think, triggered something in me. So when I always thought about social justice issues, for me, racism was a big issue. Discrimination was a big issue. Uh, Everything in between, you know, new Nazi youth I had to fight with in Mm. the schoolyard or the areas we grew up to. Having to argue with teachers that maybe my grades, you know, should be valued as much Mm. as the Swedish pupils, you know, I felt discriminated and, uh, and so on. So, so when I, when I came to the university, of course, this, this perspective on politics was my, it was my way of seeing Mm. society. And what was shocking was that there was other conversations going on in, in political science and, and our education and also with the, the the comrades that I study with and, and so on. So so I I understood that uh, there's a problem with different perspectives. And mm. my perspective also, it's not just because I like a more just society. I also felt injustice in a way that I could not accept a lot of the problem definitions that mm. paved the way for for university education. And of course, when I had the chance of choosing my own research project and Mm. design i i chose Mm. the problem of inequality and non-participation and the problems of democracy as like the main frame Mm. to work with that that seemed very natural to me do you see like your career as a revenge 
for the life you had when you were young? Uh, yeah, I think every day I'm doing my best to mess with the system that, <laughs> that enables inequalities. I think that I see that as a mission. And if I go to bed and uh, think of the day as a day in which I did not do that, that is a bad day. <laughs> um, so I always try to struggle. Of course, this is very abstract and, and general, mm. but I always try to find a way to uplift equality yeah. and democracy issues mm. and social justice perspectives in, in whatever I do and wherever. Also, as an individual, like as a parent, as a friend, as a colleague. Yeah. Uh, that is always in my mind. Yeah. And like when you mentioned the issue of power, democracy, and policy regarding contemporary urban planning, can you elaborate more? Like what kind of issue or what do you see that we don't see? Or maybe we see, but we are silent about it. Yeah, for me, the, the, the quest for my intellectual project is to re-envision a new role for the state, for the public organization that is uh, our common resource for achieving the society we want uh, in new ways, in more democratic ways, in ways that may, makes way for more social justice. And if, if we look at Sweden, I think most people in the world look at Sweden as a successful example in where the state has been reprogrammed from being basically 150 years ago a dictatorship and a very poor and unjust society to become uh, one of the most democratic and equal countries in the world. And um, this, of course, uh, has been made possible with several social movements struggling to reprogram the functions of the state in society in ways to accommodate different social interests uh, but not only the interest of the rich and privileged but also this compromise between the interest of the working classes and the excluded and and the and the corporate and business the capitalist class that owns the the main resources of production in society and this project uh, was about First, democracy, and second, the welfare state. So democracy was about achieving equal political rights to participate uh, in, in public affairs. And the welfare state was about creating equal life conditions for all, despite uh, your class of birth, in order to make way for... Uh, equality in opportunities. And in that sense, Sweden and also other Nordic countries in Europe has developed a social model that has been appreciated by in research and also by other countries in relation to, you know, uh, enabling for equality. If you look at Sweden from an equality point of view, you see example, between men and women, a more equal relationship, but also between the classes. If you're born in a working class family in Sweden, you, you will have certain rights, political rights, social rights, cultural rights, 
And these rights uh, enable people to grow despite, you know, the choices of their parents, but also despite bad luck. If you if you get a, a disease or if you have an accident, we have, for example, a social care and healthcare system which is obliged to provide for your needs in order for you to stand up again and do your things without being dependent on your ability to pay for these services. And, and so the welfare state has decommodified uh, social care and health care and also culture and, and other kind of rights for, for citizens, which is revolutionary. So when we see young people in, in, in Iran um, dying for these rights, we can have a glimpse of how important it is for people to to feel, first of all, that they are accounted for as citizens, uh, but also um, that they live in a society which will care for them, despite, you know, the hazards of life. And, and of course, but, so, so a criticism towards me is, well, what is your problem? We live in Sweden, this is the best of the world, so what, yeah. But I mean, uh, Sweden is not a perfect society, and and for the social movements that struggled for all all these, you know, evolutionary innovations in democracy and social welfare, they dreamt of something more. We have to keep that in mind. They dreamt of full equality, which we have never achieved in Sweden. We were close in the eighties. But since the 80s, Swedish society has become more unequal. And this is a point where research is very clear and, uh, and uh, accepted also among researchers. Income inequalities in Sweden has been uh, rising five times in 40 years, uh, which of course have created a more unequal society. And with these inequalities, we now see the trembling of the democratic system, not only in relation to our last election, where there's a new compromise where the new fascist or, or right-wing populist party, Swedish Democrats, have been very influential in forming the policy program the coming four years. But also, if we look, if we look at how citizens react and think about democracy and equality, we, we see the return of autocracy, also in Swedish culture. The idea that maybe democracy is not a good thing, maybe we should have fewer people ruling, maybe inequalities are good because we, you know, promote efficiencies and growth and this, you know, there should be some kind of inequalities to push people to work harder and so on. So we see the return of these kind of values and ideas which are of course very troubling for the future yeah so like the image we have about sweden is a kind or the world have about sweden is a kind of outdated um i think not outdated but um, maybe totally not accurate sweden of course uh, gives a lot of people the opportunities to grow despite uh, bad luck and the the size of the pockets of their parents but still we can see that racism 
inequalities, also gender inequalities are rising in a way that people do not have equal opportunities to flourish equally in Sweden. And uh, we have the fortune here to bring these issues up for debate. And my privilege as a researcher is that I meet a lot of policymakers and I see huge public investments and programs that want to enforce equality, which of course are lacking in other contexts. We don't see these kind of policies maybe not even in America today or, or England or, or you know, countries that, that, that we also perceive as democratic and equal. So in Sweden, we have, I think, uh, an obligation to raise these issues because so many other people in the world can't. So most people in the world are not living in democracies. Most people in the world are living in autocracies, dictatorships, undemocratic or small democratic regimes. And billions of people in the world are rightless. They don't have rights. They don't have the right to work. They don't have any jobs. They don't have any citizenship rights. But we have that in Sweden. So it's also our obligation to, with our work in different ways, reimagine the world because we, are, we have the freedom to do that. Exactly. We should take the lead like, yeah. and, and have it as a responsibility to, yeah. keep, to keep what we have and even go even further. Exactly. As you mentioned, like reach the fullest equality. Yeah, mm? yeah. Mm? Uh, of course, what does that mean? That is one of our it's, problems it's to big, discuss. Yeah, of course, it's a very broad. But we have the freedom to discuss that. Exactly. So, Like now we are talking. Yeah, let's, let's talk, you know. Mm? Yeah. And if you take us to more urban planning, the physical infrastructure and segregation and other, what, what do you see? Is it like a cause of the system? people or planners of course a combination of these things segregation is from my point of view a, a bad definitely a bad uh, in the city but we cannot only relate it to how urban planners have been you know uh, working mm. uh, it's a much broader issue than that yeah because like i listen to you many times you say segregation is not only the physical infrastructure much more no it's about social separation between different classes different uh, ethnic groups or racial groups uh, which we why is that a problem it shouldn't be a problem maybe people want to you know spend time with the people who are more like mm. themselves but it becomes a problem when we also see segregation as uh, a symptom a consequence of inequalities which also exacerbates inequalities. It makes inequalities even worse mm. uh, by uh, taking away, you know, life chances from the poorest uh, and the low resourceful groups in society. Mm. Uh, and and this is not an issue that has been caused by urban planning. Okay, and it's therefore not not only. Not only, yeah. yeah. And therefore it's not either an issue that can be fixed with urban planning. It's much deeper than that. It's, it's uh, a part of our class hierarchies in, this, in, in society. Mm. That the rich and the poor and all, all those in between have different ways of life 
because of their position in societies. Mm. Their position in uh, the social order of human inter- interaction at work, in the family, wherever, uh, hierarchizes people and displaces some and privileges other. So we could perhaps see the cities of you know the late 19th century as non-segregated, but if we look closer, they were still very unequal. Poor people lived in small houses, very, or even in the apartments of apartments, of yeah. rich people, being their servants. Mm. So we could see a spatial proximity and integration, but still, you know, vast inequalities and unfreedoms of the poor. Mm-hmm. What we have today is another kind of segregation, especially in in modern cities, uh, Sweden and other European cities, where we can see, you know, the clustering of uh, people belo- belonging to the different classes mm. uh, in different specialities of, of the city. And with immigration and racism, we can also see this class clustering of people, which is, you know, steered with one I- important factor, and that's income level mm. that, that yeah. defines the ability you have to get the housing you want. Mm. Um, but we see a racialization mm. of this class clustering. So therefore it's relevant to talk about racial segregation because mm. if we look at the poor areas, uh, which areas are poor in Sweden? Where, well, it's the areas that were planned by public sector uh, during the post-war era. Um, which had a use value system mm. for the rent uh, level uh, negotiated between the tenants association and the landlords, which have kept the rents quite low, but quite also free from market speculation. Mm. And these areas were also built for the working class and uh, integrated into the cities with public transport and other kind of social amenity mm. and goods, schools and squares and commercial centers and so on. Um, and today, these, because they have been de-invested mm. for so long, they are the cheapest housing areas. But also as immigrants have concentrated there, uh, more wealthy and, and also which correlates with white households households have been moved away so mm-hmm. this is this phenomenon of yeah. white flight so we see the polarization of ethnicity but mm-hmm. if we look deeper it's also a class segmentation because mm-hmm. it's the low income people that are more or less forced to live in these uh, modern project areas, the million program homes, Mm. which has the occupation model of rental and rent controlled, uh, not social housing, but public housing. That's the specialty of the Swedish system. Mm. We have no social housing, but we have a rent controlled public housing Mm. still. Yeah. It's, it's also shaking in the foundations, but Mm. we still have it, which makes rents cheaper and therefore they are more, more available for for people with lower resources. Mm-hmm. So other people who can 
have a loan or can pay a lot more, like four times more in rent, yeah. they can choose, of course, where to live more easily. But if you're an immigrant, like my parents were immigrant household, you have no permanent or no privileged position in the hierarchies of the labor market. You have to do maybe the kind of service or manufacturing jobs that other people rather not mm. uh, with a, a lower uh, incomes and salaries and also maybe longer commuting uh, time. Yeah. Um, then, of course, you, you have a more stressed life situation and, and perhaps you have also quite a few kids mm. and uh, which which is when we look at what's going on in the social is- issues in these <clears throat> areas that are vulnerable in our Swedish language. Mm. Important factors to look at. So like from when I, when I listen to you now talking, segregation is not as how we like generalize it. It's like two societies or communities separated by a highway. It's like much more deeper because what we see as a planners or usually is like, okay, we have like, one area here, one area here. They are not talking to each other because of this highway. Yeah. So let's solve it and maybe dig down the highway and build a tunnel so maybe people meet and or so on. You know, like trying to remove the physical barriers. Yeah, there are a lot of physical barriers, but I mean, Mustafa, you're from Helsingborg. Yeah. And a lot of immigrants in Helsingborg, they live in the city district called Söder. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah. is pretty much in the center of the city. Yeah. It's yeah. not hard to get there. No, no. Uh, but still you can feel segregation in the air, right? Mm, true. Uh, so it's not only about the physical mm. structure. And if you look at, if you look at the American cities, if you look at some British cities, if you look at other Southern European cities, you can see that, well, segregation could be a relation still mm. ongoing in a very proximate and dense environment. Yeah. And then there are more subtle mm. aspects, right? Like, um, for example, <laughs> um, like which of the buildings here are social housing mm. and which street has the low, lowest prices on the food and coffee or a low mm. low price consumption spots and so on. So so that's still a separation in space, but it's more subtle. Mm. And perhaps you can see that, well, that kind of integration of different classes in space makes some of the negative aspects of segregation less harsh Okay, from the perspective of the poor people. Mm. Because they still have a proximity to a lot of resources because mm. more affluent people also live there. But then there could be other factors that exclude people, right? The mental barriers uh, or even discriminatory mm. laws and procedures on where you can go and so on. Mm. So like by connecting two different areas, by uh, like public transportation, opening uh, parks in between, removing the physical barriers is not going to solve the segregation. No, because as long as you have areas with the concentration of a certain uh, occupational models, you still will have a clustering in space. So... 
I know this is not a secret that planners are talking about social mixing and how to build in different occupational models. But what happens in Sweden and other places, research is quite clear on this point as well, is that rather than building <laughs> low income uh, or low cost housing occupation models in richer areas, planners are building or planning more expensive uh, middle class or upper middle class accommodation styles like uh, small single houses or or bostadsrätter as we say here or own owners some kind of owner house uh, accom- accommodation uh, in poor areas and what this uh, creates is a kind of gentrification model of officially dismantling segregation but not really solving the problem because life situation for poor people then becomes even more stressed. Yeah. Because other rent levels go up, uh, mm-hmm. consumption level mm-hmm. goes up, and we see the exclusion in space. Yeah. So we are like pushing the poor people out and out and out. That's, ri- that's the risk. And if you see, for example, what's, what is happening in Gothenburg and Stockholm with, with rents going up, and the prices for life generally going on. Yeah. You can see that, you know, outskirt municipalities, which you would not assume is a part of this Stockholm or Gothenburg, you know, labor market yeah. or kind of even possibility, has become some of suburban areas where, where low-income people move in order yeah. to get housing. Yeah. Or or to live a life where where they can afford mm. uh, Flynn, for example, or or Ale in in Gothenburg, you can you can see these kind of tendencies. So, in general, if we if we also zoom out and look at Sweden, we see the polarization between the urban centers, the cities, and the urban peripheries and the rural areas as exactly part of this. Yeah. Uh, stressing process of urbanization which is not only that you know we think about urbanization as something good people live mostly in cities yeah, they have more possibilities to, they go to universities mm. they get good jobs they get uh, closer to social and commercial services mm. arenas and concerts but but the flip side of urbanization is that society is not really built for that because we have a lot of things we need which are not in in the larger cities we have industries we have land we have uh, resources that somebody should take care of we have also a lot of people that are rooted in in other places um and by deinvesting or or urbanization is kind of like a resource um and the pulling out of resources yeah. of, of these areas, which make them more impoverished, impoverished and stressed, which which is like if you look at spatial peripheries, the segregated or the vulnerable areas in Stockholm City, for example, have a lot in common with mm. cities where I grew up, Majestad, where we see the exact same deinvestments and and social problems and political problems emerging as a consequence of urbanization. Mm-hmm. So, so we should think about what what could just urbanization really mean. Mm-hmm. 
and and th- these like all this kind of transitions happen in a few in many years how do we decode this is it is there a way to to solve this and put it back make it more equal i know it's going to take like years yeah i mean is um, it possible or no we are going to go even more it's a hard issue which research of course cannot give a full answer to but um we can look back in history and see where where, where did we come from where we came from a society where the 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 rural economy was central for the national economy the peasants were important uh, they were direct producers of food the countryside had also other resources in sweden we have forests we have mines we have uh, a lot of other industries you know which rationally are better placed outside of cities and um these industries and and people you know living in these communities were in in the post war welfare planning system more uh, taken care of because we had a keynesian planning of the economy where the state interfered more directly in the redistribution of resources in order to stimulate the economy to produce the kind of goods wanted or or at least set up by democratic means as objectives of of you know the the Swedish state but now uh, and of course that situ- that planning model was not without its problems but what has happened now is a change of paradigm to a neoliberal model where not the state not the democratic institutions but rather the market institutions and the private corporations steering market company competition are uplifted as the main regulators of the distribution of these goods in society and this is one of the driving forces behind urbanization because capital needs a, a spatial fix in order to 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 grow to accumulate and to become more stable at least fictitiously stable like people think it is more stable nothing is stable um so by investing large sums of of capital in urban space the economy flourishes in a way but also becomes more crisis prone in another way so we see now the unfortunate economical development that people wanting to make money are not making money in manufacturing goods and services they are making money in buying and selling capital and this is one of the driving forces laid open in a, a in um, amazing research in in contemporary geography uh political economic research saying that you know financial financialization of capital is enforcing processes of urbanization unequally uh, and if we look back and see what have what have the democratic response to this you know um crisis prone system been well it's more state and democratic 
strictly regulated planning system. It's not only about physical planning, where should where and how should houses and infrastructure be built. It's about economic planning in general. Like how should we redistribute resources in society? Where which cities will have what kind of amenities that the country owns? So right now the market regulates this more than the state, in my opinion. Um, which enforces uh, social injustices because in the market there is only one justice and that's the justice of the achievement being better than the competitor's achievement and the better achievements should be rewarded in a market regulated price system and the the surplus value in this trade is the aim not equality right so the profit is the aim not other social values and when the profit is the aim of course this could be regarded as efficient and uh, fundamental to economic growth and uh, you know well-being wealth Uh, on the other side history tells us that if if you neglect social values use values because people need to do a lot of things where the market is a lousy price setter is a lousy performer uh everything from from you know taking care of children to schools to uh other kind of public values uh, then the market will underachieve. It will concentrate wealth unequally. And this is what we see with the 1% owning more than the 99% in the world, uh, which is also a political problem because, and this is the paradox of democracy and capitalism. We have a democratic system and a universal right for all of us to participate and to say ours and to you know be a part of the setting of our common goals. But then when we enter this system, those who can pay for most services, intellectual and thought-producing and lobbying services, are actually the ones that get more influence over these common decisions that that will affect us all. And this is not a new problem for democracy. This is an ongoing struggle for democracy to, to manage. How should we equalize influence over policy Uh, and right now neoliberalism has forced democracy in a kind of hostage situation where the those who own the means of production in society the the factories the money-making business are setting the agenda and in relation in relation to other social values it's it's a harm we look at the climate crisis if we look at the energy crisis uh, and uh, and other things people still need to have resolved uh, the the market regulation system cannot fix this alone mm. and what are you afraid of that's going to happen in sweden let's say 30 50 years are we going to continue like this or are we going to get even worse i mean for my part i have a very uh, pessimistic dystopic view of, of where we are going and of Unfortunately, world events are not 
making me happier or more optimistic. We have a climate crisis that we have notoriously tried but failed to deal with. We we are not heading toward, uh, you know, the um, uh, mitigation uh, targets of of carbon emissions and so on. Um, and even if we did, it it's not uh, sure that it would be enough. And so the reaction in the world is is to turn away from democracy, you know, from popular sovereignty. Uh, based on values of freedom, equality, solidarity, towards some kind of autocratic, reactionary sense that if we just have a strong ruler protecting our people, which in the world is organized in the uh, Westphalian national state model, so our people becomes our state, not not the human <laughs> race, you know. And so we have the emergence of autocrats and nationalism and uh, autocracy and the diminishing of democratic values and unfortunately also the strengthening of uh, conservative and sometimes even fascist or proto-fascist ideas about you know, very elitistic, very male-oriented, hierarchical ideas about the social order. We can see this, like immigration rights and human rights uh, for for asylum seekers and migrants are right now like the the main focus of uh, this, you know, conservative efforts to to disentangle democracy and my fear within you know maybe the next decade is that well there will be other groups that will be the target and in the end the winner will be the one percent and not the 99 percent and we saw this unfortunate events folding out uh, in in the first and second world war in the 20th century so i can't say and of course i can't be sure that this will never happen again. Maybe it can happen again that we will have this, you know, ruptures of, of wars and national competition leading to violence and conflicts between um, the the big nations. But also within the countries, we, we see class polarization, racial polarization, gender inequality polarization, in where, of course, male and European elites can have more to say about the kind of social system that they prefer that of course will benefit them and not the 99 percent yeah but this is a bit pessimistic i'm sorry but no it's i mean this is your your point of view yeah and and you, it's based on what you know what you study and how you predict the future as well but like from urban planning point of view now we are more like cities heading toward okay we are opening up cities we make them more socialized, people can go out, can meet meet each other. We're like removing the physical barriers. We're even, how to say, integrating people in the decision-making, as you know, like doing a lot of uh, dialogues with people and so on. Mm. What do you think about this kind of democratizing the process, the urban development process? Is it like the real equal democracy? Like we meet people, hey, what do you think about this? And then... Yeah, I'm... I'm 
I'm all for it. I'm I'm pro these kind of innovations trying to deepen democracy, even if it's more from an top-down perspective rather than you know the old uh, narrative of democratization where people come together and they struggle together in big social movements and they occupy squares and buildings and they demand their rights and then the elite will kind of give up and give them rights and so on this is another model where the, where the elite says please come and participate with us we want good things for you so of course uh, I'm I'm curious about this, but I have also always been critical because it does not sound right that the elite, especially with the story I had about where we are heading, where the elite is suddenly saying, uh, "Hey, you know what? We want to share power with everyone, and really we want social justice and equality." But we look outside the window here from your office, we see the exactly opposite thing happening but i think that we also from a research and theory point of view need to understand the paradoxes of the state and the different functions of the state and how we all working with the these kind of professional activities are entangled in different kind of struggle struggles so the state is not um monovocal agent it's a plurivocal agent the state wants different things, exactly as corporations and others could have a struggle in relation to their aims and focus and so on. And within these struggles, we have pockets of opportunities opening up for social justice efforts, which I think we should embrace. Because within these pockets of opportunities, we can see some maybe crucial innovations emerging that could take us forward in the future. So, you know, during the first and the world, second world war and all the atrocities going on, people did not stop working on the visions and ideas about a more social, just and democratic world. You come from a war zone yourself. You fled from there, from Iraq. And you know, while this was going on, people did not stop being people. People were dreaming about something else. So when <clears throat> we work, we have the power to, in our daily lives, envision another social and political order. I think this is key for hope for, for all of us who wants another more democratic and, and just social order. We need to live it day by day. And of course, I have studied uh, different practices within planning, trying to dis uh, combat segregation, enhance participation. And there's always criticism that I have and can give about both how these processes have been planned, but also their effects, not really meeting up to their objectives. But still what I see always is a lot of people struggling to enable a more socially just environment and world and i think that is uh, valuable so i think definitely that we should uh, promote more innovations for democracy for for equality for integration social justice but we also need to be sober you know we should not dream away and imagine that this is the solution we also need to look at the horizon to try to see the big picture and uh, and also do other things. Mm. Can you give us like a, 
you mentioned that you have some critic about the processes. Can you can you share with us? Yeah, the Swedish model of participatory planning, which yeah. is called citizens dialogues, Medborgare mm-hmm. dialog, is a good example where uh, it came from. You can say uh, an idea nurtured by state agents, mm. researchers, uh, radical planners, uh, politicians, striving to strengthen the ideas of participatory and deliberative democracy. And they managed to build up a policy infrastructure, no, not any hard laws, but rather soft policies to encourage people to innovate and experiment more with citizens participation okay and which is good no as a very positive because most municipalities in sweden despite of their political affiliations and and majority coalitions ruling them have an a policy saying that we strive to deepen democracy if you look at the world i said minority of the world's population do not uh, live in democracies so majority of people in the world live in dictate so it's it's a blessing for us to have politicians that are committed to the democratic ideal and um in in line with this policy infrastructure a soft encouraging policy infrastructure we see a lot of initiatives on the local level where professionals not only planners but maybe school staff <clears throat> other kind of public managers are engaging in trying to adjust uh, planning and service production by the public sector to meet the needs of citizens and also inhabitants in general which is uh, it's it's i think very inspiring and there are also a lot of inspiring examples um but if you look at the consequences of what these practices result to it's not really what is promised so these practices citizen dialogues invite people to participate and influence and partake in public decision making in different ways but you cannot really see that this is the effects of the processes is my argument i read research i talk to researchers in different parts of the world where citizen budgets and other kind of planning participatory planning initiatives are more radical giving more money more say to the participants in deciding what is actually going on while in sweden i would say what a citizen dialogue in planning mostly is 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 a preference management system where planners invite citizens to either be informed or to extract information from them in relation to their preferences on whatever this part of the city we are going to build it or this park or all kinds of issues like what are your preferences and then the dialogue in basically is like the summing up of different voices and preferences almost like dream lists that citizens provide like we want this we want this we want this and then the planners are like yeah the, the people but what they mean is like the people we talk to 
and rarely any methods for representative sampling. So mostly like it's it's quite random people, people showing up with time or people the planners target, like we want kids or we want female citizens or we want whatever. We select. Yeah. The, it's the selection of a voice that the planners are responsible. So it's the planners people. It's the planners public. Um, and these voices are mostly used as a consultative kind of a uh, value in the planning process. For the participants, it's not really clear, like, how will you meet my voice here or how can I... So uh, it's it's like... Uh... It's it's not like a democratic. We still like f- select what we want to show and what we want to listen to. Well, it depends on what you mean with democracy. Hmm. Democracy is popular sovereignty. The people decides. Hmm. I think <clears throat> I have found very few citizen dialogues in planning where the participants can actually decide on something mm. that then will be produced in in some kind of city. Yeah. There's a long step between the dialogue and the production of the city. Many years also. But there are other democratic values. So uh, one of the main ideals of particip- participatory democracy is that people get to learn how to participate and with this learning they also empower themselves and get able to critically reflect on who they are and what society is they learn about society and with this wisdom and knowledge they can do other things so in 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 a democracy citizens should be knowledgeable enough to understand what is going on. So that is a democratic value. And I can see that this value is realized in the citizens' dialogue because citizens taking part in one or two or three evenings or weekends discussing planning issues with planners and other citizens, maybe even politicians, they get to know these system agents these uh, planners and who they are and what they want and how are you talking about my area and what is really going on in planning what are, why are they talking about sustainability and what do they mean and what is this you know uh, barn consequence on a lease and so people get to know politics in a more uh, concrete way and with this wisdom they can do other things. Also, every citizen dialogue is also like a mini public. It's a small, small public place op- opened up. In, and all publics have a democratic value where people interact. They see each other in a new light. They see, you know, different values maybe obscure to them in their private life. And with this kind of, if, if you have thousands of these kind mm, of mini yeah. publics, you also you open up a, a sphere of participation, which I can see could have values in the future. But of course, the danger is that these publics are owned and controlled by planners and other system agents, consultants, for example, uh, or, or politicians uh, wanting to 
uh, have a sort of voice derived from the people and yeah. so on. So there are dangers, which I think we should be aware of. But I would say that in all days of the week, mm. we should have more publics yeah. rather than fewer publics. Yeah. And when I listen to you, you mentioned that how we should turn it from a di- from a monologue to a dialogue. What steps or what should we think about? I think the most important step further for citizens' dialogue and public participation in general is to realize a deliberative ideal, which was the point behind these kind of democratic innovations, in mm. part at least. The deliberative ideal says that, you know, a problem that we have in democracy is that the elites decide what is right and what is wrong, <clears throat> and that the system of power and money, capitalism and the state, forces people to become instrumental mm. in their social interactions. You, you're a citizen, but you want to win, mm. no? You mm. want to beat the other guy. You want a better job. Your, you want your party to win. You want your organization to have, you know, its policy issues winning. And this kind of system distorts mm. other values that, you know, as a humans we have as well. Uh, for example, communicative values, trying to understand each other. Like, who are you, Mustafa? And what am I doing here? And how can we both win from this kind of podcast interaction? Mm. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to win over you here. But together. Yeah, we are trying to, you know, yeah. understand each other. Yeah. And this is also how we behave with friends, mm. with family, hopefully, <clears throat> with colleagues, uh, hopefully. This is a part of us. Yeah. So uh, Jürgen Habermas, which was one of the big thinkers behind this deliberative ideal of democracy, said that, If we have no places in society where this communicative ideal can be realized and informing mm. policy making, we only have this instrumentalist, egoistic perspectives True. infused, mm. and this will impoverish democracy. Then we will have, you know, the winners get it all system. So the deliberative ideal says that if you encourage policy making by this by encouraging more deliberative public mm. in where ideals of reciprocity, uh, understanding, uh, and argumentation rather than an ambition to win over to the win, other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, trying to understand the other's point of view, trying to make an argument to rationally you know, criticize or see it from another point of view. And without kind of power, structures here as equally as possible trying to achieve a common good like what is our best solution here given who you are who i am who we are how can how can we understand how can we come to a decision where we feel that this this is a solution that benefits us all if we have this kind of ideal uh, integrated within what we call a citizen dialogue it's even called a dialogue <laughs> We would have planners or we would have citizens sitting with each other, not only making up dream list of what they want, but forcing them to listen to the other person and say something about, you know, well, I want this, you want that. How should we resolve this? But in the citizen dialogues, people are not encouraged 
to make decisions together. It's rather these dream lists. Yeah, like I come and I say what I want, then yeah. goodbye. And then you leave. And yeah. maybe after this meeting, you will understand how stupid all other people are and how smart you really are because yeah, yeah. You, you're right. But mm. I mean, imagine if the planner could have this role. Uh, all We know that all of you are different, but you know what? We are going to do this. And this is an opportunity for us to agree upon the common good. And we won't decide what the common good is. You have to decide. And you have to discuss until you have found a way that accommodates your differences, your conflicts. It might not be perfect, but this is the ideal that will steer this process. Imagine that, Mustafa. What kind of processes would we have? First, we would have chaos, of course, because... Yeah, in the beginning, it's only in the... yeah. Society is so polarized elderly men in their 60s plus with you know young teenagers in their 70s from different areas uh, with different life amb- ambitions having to decide on how the front door of the afri building will be you know uh, designed is not an easy thing but my argument is that this is happening in participatory planning processes in different parts of the world in india in Brazil, in North America, in Southern Europe, even in Africa, we can see examples where the deliberative ideal have been realized in public decision-making, both in experiments, but also in real life decision-making on real complex issues. And researchers argue that if you do it this way, the probability of enhancing social justice and deepening democracy in unequal societies like India and Brazil is still possible. So my argument is that if participatory planning in Brazil achieved this, if Garam Sabas, the village councils in in India, the largest deliberative institution in the world where 800 million yearly deliberate poor people in villages around complex planning issues, if they succeed, Of course, we could succeed in Sweden if our ambitions would be deliberative. So my criticism is that we have a participatory speaking planning public, but they are not living up to this ideal in practice. And is this is a responsibility of planners or uh, um, citizens or both? Uh, I would say it's it's mainly the the policymakers, the politicians is uh, is the is the main uh, agents here who uh, and that's also where the support for this deliberative and participatory ideal is lacking today they is a lot of lip service i mean uh, who would go out there in a democracy and say we do not really want people to participate no everybody would go out there and say we want people to participate and therefore we have a participatory policy we have a citizen you know we have hundreds of citizen dialogues so that is a good thing but Planners should be really aware of what they are engaging in because most of the problems of the processes I have studied is that the politicians say that they want deliberations, but in practice they do not really want it. So the planners are also taken hostage here by a paradoxical policy. But I think the planners as intellectuals, you know, uh, can influence 
this idea of participation as something more than is happening today. And I get critical when I hear planners talk about citizen dialogues as some kind of market investigation of people's preferences or some kind of uh, inquiry on CAT where you send out a questionnaire where people can just add, you know, fill in boxes of, I like this a lot, I don't like this a lot. So think about the deliberative ideal. The, the point with the deliberative democracy ideal is that people's preferences are not written in stone. They are a result of complex social processes, discourses in society, media, norms, values. The point is not only to measure people's preferences. That's not democracy. Democracy is about something else. It's, it's to together transform preferences in line with social justice values. That would be my yeah. argument. And this is very interesting. And I, I'm very inspired now, actually, for my then next coming processes. It's also like a challenge because you're in between. You want you like I believe as a as a planners we have a mission to make cities for people, and also by people. At the same time, they are not the owner of the land; they are not the policymaker, but they are like one of the player to decide as well. So here comes like how to find the balance without pushing somebody under the table and not listening to it. Of course, an argument would be that in a in the representative democratic system we have people have an opportunity to engage in elections and in parties and run for office and be elected and that's the way we should do things but this is an unequal institution we know this uh, the abilities to participate in the channels of representative democracies are not equal so therefore if you only hide behind this system you will program in inequalities into all yeah. planning processes. Yeah, true. And before we move to the next section of this episode, it's going to be more about you. The last question here is, what should we as urban planners stop doing? Stop being idiots. And with idiots, I don't mean talentless or lesser intellectual. I mean egoistic figures working only for self-interested motive. So this is part of the problems of bureaucracy because the terms of engagement in bureaucracy is that you get a prescribed role in an organization and you have to fulfill this. And if you are, you know, if you work good, you get incentives and you get, uh, you know, good things coming to you, higher salary, better job, more influence. and and if you look at how the political economy looks now with great injustices program institutionalized in both public and private planning agencies i think the planner's role should be to always keep in mind what would be the public value here and not only my self-interest or my organization or... Or, or exactly how i don't want to win you know all the time i also want to understand and and see that you know the the beauty of the city is that the city is a social commodity not a private commodity it's not a thing that i want to control 
or I should control as a planner is something that I need to understand. And uh, that's why I like the, 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 the label of this podcast. I mean, people are the city. And if, if you really do not, if you're not interested in people, then basically you're not interested in the city. You're interested in something else. So a people-oriented public value professional, you know, idea should be motivating all all planners. And the opposite is something that you should not do. Mm. Very interesting. So what makes you happy in your city? I think when I feel happy is when I feel I'm part of something, a community, which is, of course, a clustering of people. So I think what made Stockholm city so interesting for me was the existence and the presence of a community that I really, that I identified uh, with people sharing my, you know, life ambitions mm. and, and, uh, you know, ideas. I identified it and I also saw like concrete ways of being part of this community. Mm -hmm. More like active. Yeah, like uh, I I did not only know about the people, I actually met them. Yeah. And we met uh, other people mm -hmm. and suddenly we started to talk about ourselves as a we. Mm -hmm. And uh, if there's a we, there's a them. So there's a struggle. We want to win, but still, this this communal idea, the city makes that possible. Mm. And and of course, the larger cities make that possible more. If yeah, more chances, more people. Because people specialize, and, and there are more subcultures, and so on. So so that's the great value of the city, and and the city as a social commodity, um, really creates wealth in in a mesmerizing way not only um, money kind of wealth but also other kind of wealth wealth that people need to flourish to to grow to realize themselves everything from ideas to cultures to things to do things to practice environments which which i think i love i love this about the cities yeah and what makes uh, Nazam sad in the city? I think it's all the parts of the city that stops this, you know, realization of this communal uh, idea. Um, how cities are being, you know, polarized, how cities are being used by the wealthy and the rich and the powerful to benefit and privilege their interests by also taking away a lot of benefits from from other people trying to shutting down the the true functioning mm. of the city the city is a space of freedom yeah where you can you know where you should be able to realize yourselves your beliefs in respect and solidarity with mm. others mm. and I, I see sometimes you know the way for example the city privileges uh, automobility mm. it's not a people it, it's not like um, a city designed not for people it's people drive cars as well yeah but certain people drive cars exactly you must afford a, yeah. a car you must uh, 
force the government to build a lot of roads in order to mm. you know have the freedom in a car and this creates a structure where where you polarize people mm. especially at the same time where you know that uh, commuting in a city is as important as with public transport yeah. as uh, an elevator in a building because that's the way it is mm. and you see that i mean imagine if you would enter your office building or or your apartment building and somebody would charge you for the elevator mm-hmm. so so this is the kind of um, obstructions of freedom that we have in the city mm. which makes them i think more democratic mm. uh, less democratic less democratic yeah and and Nazim, if you get uh, 1 million dollar it's like 10 10 million crown and you are allowed to invest it more in urban planning projects. In what will you invest? What kind of project? Wow. It's good money. Yeah, it's good money. I would definitely <laughs> first identify and do like a knowledge process and see what in which area of the city is there like a clear absence of a public space hmm. that people are suffering from. Uh, it could be a library. It could just be somewhere where people can sit indoors and have a chat or a coffee, a cheap coffee, or somewhere where people can dance and sing or or practice whatever they like, gym or whatever. I, w- I would see like where where do we need a public mm. space, and then after identifying this place, I would invest in. Um, a new kind of uh, prototype for uh, for the future of public space in, in, in a culture house or social activity house. Call it what you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I would call it a people's house. People's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, with some kind of values that, you know, everybody can come in here and do what they want yeah. as long as they respect others mm-hmm. and in solidarity and so on. Um, but... I would also program this space for certain activities mm. like dance and joy and music and practicing, but also loose tie kind of activities, just, you know, walking around, maybe watching art, having a coffee, having, having a cheap, nice meal, or, or maybe arranging a big party, a wedding. Mm. Uh, I would also play some kind of knowledge institution in there. Yeah. maybe. Maybe a university or at least the public aspect of some university or some other kind of school mm. system mm. so that people also go here to do more focused things. Yeah. Maybe a library mm. would be would be would be good to have here. Uh, and also a rich environment for uh, small children's yeah. free free play, mm. I think is central for all communal activities. Yeah. Where where you if you're in a city where you see children mm. play, you will have a public space around there. Exactly. What What is troubling when you go into a city and you don't see any children play, then you know you have a problem with, with yeah. publics in this city. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, like a sign. And if you can decide to be something else than yourself as a human, you can choose anything. What will you be and why? Apple tree. Apple tree? Yeah. Why? Solid, 
communal regular in in providing for public goods mm. and services but also somebody who needs to be taken care of mm. and live in a symbiotic relation with its mm. close and also abstract ecosystems yeah uh, i think i would like to be an apple tree i'm also very fond of uh, apples i produce my own cider at home you do that yeah i have apple trees i try to take care of them and with the fruits i press them to juice and i ferment them to delicious cider that's so, nice so that's also my personal hobby do you sell them soon maybe yeah soon, huh? yeah after this podcast yeah maybe, maybe. <laughs> you should give a promotion code discount for yeah, this yeah <laughs> watch out for the cider house it will soon be in a yeah. system shelf <laughs> near you <laughs> and uh, like now you're doing this career and uh, you're very ambitious you're very honest in your talk um, you're not hiding your agenda you're very bold as well and you as you mentioned you try like to shake the system so let's say in in hundreds years from now when people gonna google your name what do you want them to say about you or to hear about you like when they see your name first of all i would be happy if there is someone left in the world in a hundred years to be able to do that this is my angst at the moment and of course i hope that when you know my children's children when they google my name they will see somebody who did his or her best to try to stop the 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 destruction mask scale destruction of our life systems uh, as of now with the climate crisis and all i think uh, this is not only something that i want or dream about this is something i feel that i have to do and of course i would be very ashamed of myself if the the remnants of the human race would google you know the intellectuals of of stockholm city for example not that i'm a great intellectual there are thousands of people out there but i i'm a small piece of the puzzle in this intellectual debates if if we would you know close our eyes or or be quiet about our challenges right now our proven evidence-based cha- challenges with the climate crisis uh, that is unthinkable for me i mean i have to do everything i can to make sure that future future generations can have a flourishing life have a life uh, on this earth and and my part of this is to strive for a more and deeper democratic system because i think whatever we envision we need have to an idea of the procedures that we are going to decide how to strategize and and move forward and and democracy for me is the way forward and i want to ask you a question because you do um studies like you read a lot of papers and so on at the same time you have a family you have kids is it true that like working or doing research takes a lot of time and maybe taking also time of your private life how would, how is your work life balance oh, i would say this is an ongoing struggle i i recently come back from a burnt out uh, period uh, where i uh, obviously could not manage this uh, stress of balancing 
you know, activities that gives me energy and activities that take energy away from me. I, I, I was in balance. And I think uh, for me is to not be instrumental in my lifestyle, not to always do things to win over others, but rather to, you know, have a more communicative ideal that I need to understand others in my in relation to my own ambitions otherwise the result is that i will you know take energy away from other people my closest my my kids and, and my partner my family and friends i feel that i need to not to do that i need to be equal in my lifestyle at home and and a prize for that is of course that i cannot be the researcher that i want because it takes a lot of time if you work six to eight hours a day with a lot of commuting and you need to travel, you need to, you know, meet people, you need to struggle to get a position, to get research funding, to get, you know, to, to try to survive the increasing pressures of teaching, which has gone through major reforms and teachers have to produce a lot of teaching a lot for their teaching hours, a lot more than, than a, a few decades before, which is very stressful. Academic life is an impossibility for, for most people. And I, I, I can also see how it damages a lot of people. But I try to think that, you know, I cannot be the best at what I do. It's good enough for me to be just, you know, good enough to live up to my ambitions and uh, you know not to sacrifice love and friendship and these kind of social and uh, especially ideals that are important to me to be like a social justice oriented thinking and doing citizen not to sacrifice these values just because i want to have the best professional career that is what i am struggling with so what is what if you what is your winning card here to, to separate or to, for balancing? What is the key? Uh, I think uh, trying to reasoning with my family and my friends and my colleagues about these troubles, trying to have a reasoning attitude. Like um, there's, there's not one solution to everything, but if you are, if you are reasoning and reasoning minded, at least you you can try to understand the other and and therefore not to be you know uh, destructively competitive even at home for example to try to win an hour here or an hour there try to be like generous about the communal values of being at home a lot and you know sharing sharing domestic work and and also having time for the other pleasures of life. Come on, we have, we have food, we have wine, we have ciders, we have trees, we have gardens, we have people, culture, we have all these things, which maybe in our professional life, we, we see them as, you know, sidetracks or, but for me, it's like to try to see these things as, as these are the main, main enjoyments of life uh, and of course i'm passionate about about my job but my job is still something i need to do in order to 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 provide for for myself and my family so so i try to think 
like this. And of course, in my social vision, I think uh, we would not work this much that we have to do. We would work maybe maybe four hours a day. And uh, with with our other hours, we would fulfill our citizens' obligations. Yeah. And, and part of that is also taking care of our environment. It's not only professionally. I mean, privately, we have to take care of our in- environment. We cannot dream of uh, a leisure activity being flying to New York every weekend. We cannot have these kind of ambitions. They are not sustainable. We need to have other other visions. And I think we are capable of that, but the power money system kind of draws us away from that. Thank, thanks for sharing. And now we are in the last section and I have only two questions for you. First one is going to be you giving three takeaway messages for our listeners. Democracy is worth dying for. People are dying for democracy all around the world. So try to appreciate the systems that we have in Sweden. It's not about defending them. We need to advance them. And uh, be realistic. Always demand the impossible. Always demand the impossible. If if we have no people demanding the impossible, we will not move. We always need a horizon of the impossible in order to dream of a more of a better world. That's it. And the last question. It's going to be you asking it to us. So now it's your turn to ask me and the listener. How should we save our planet? This is the most important question. So Nazem, I'm very happy to talk to you and I'm, I'm very grateful that you give your time to, to inspire us and to share your knowledge with us. So thank you so much for coming and I'm looking really forward to talk more about the more interesting research you do and projects you do in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Mustafa. Thanks for the invitation.